scripture lesson is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to to death. The word of the Lord. Lord, help me as I would try to open the scriptures as I deal with another passage that is troubling. Lord, troubling, deeply troubling. There are things in the Bible that trouble us when we read them and we say, how could a good God authorize this. Lord, help me to attempt to explain without minimizing the gravity of the situation on the one hand or causing anyone to stumble who listens to this message. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, for it is only as I'm full of Jesus that people will benefit from what I say. Help me, O Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, this is the second in a series of sermons entitled, Scandalous Text. And if you're a regular Bible reader, you come across things from time to time that you say, what? How in the world could this be so? When we're deeply troubled by it. Last week, we looked at the genocide against the Midianites uh, who joined with the Moabites to attempt to break Israel, you remember that Balak had hired the false prophet Balaam to come and curse Israel. And again, this is a very important concept in Scripture, curses and blessings. There really are such things as curses, and there really are such things as blessings, and the power of life and death is in the tongue. It's in your tongue. And it's in my tongue. That's why we ought to shut up most of the time. (laughs) Because we may inadvertently cause somebody to stumble and harm somebody greatly by the words of our mouth, even when we are being completely sincere. Unless we're being led by the gentle Holy Spirit, our words can pierce like a sword thrust and really harm someone. And so we looked last week at how Balaam, realizing he could not curse Israel because every time he attempted to do it, God tied his tongue and his curse came out as a blessing, came up with a clever scheme. He got the women of Midian and Moab to seduce the Israelite men to go and worship their their false gods. And when Israel worshipped their false gods, that particular god was called Baal of Peor, Baal of Peor, uh, when they joined themselves to that God, immediately they had aligned themselves away from Israel's God, whose proper name is Yahweh, not Jehovah. That's a uh, misreading of the Hebrew text, whose name is Yahweh. And they had aligned themselves with Baal Peor. At that moment, they lost the covering of God's protection and blessing over them. And so, Some 23,000 people, if I remember correctly, died as a result of that. 
And so we looked at that very difficult passage. Today we look at another difficult passage, and that's this passage here that says that King Saul had brought about a famine for three years. Now think about what a famine would do. You've got, you don't have Kroger's here, but you have what's going to become Kroger's, Albertson's, and you have um, many other places like Walmart to go and buy groceries. You have to remember in the ancient world, people didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have canned goods, they lived from season to season. And can you imagine the effect of a famine for three years on a country? What would that mean? It would mean that thousands of people will have died. And so this famine is a very serious thing. And so when this has gone on, David is very concerned. He's the king. And so kings have authority. And remember, that doesn't mean so much boss as it means protector. The king is the protector of God's people. And so he goes to God. You remember this great truth, dear ones, if you will. Whenever you have a problem that you can't figure out, particularly if you're in leadership, you need to get on your face before God and say, Oh God, give me wisdom. I don't know what to do. And that is the place I stand before you today. As attempting to explain these scriptures, I need wisdom from God to explain them correctly. So why did this bring about a famine? Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we notice a command that God gave. And we will notice why God gave the command. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and beginning at verse 1, that's page 285. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy, do not intermarry with them, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Look at this verse. This is the key verse, is verse 4. Remember this. There is no hint in the whole of the Bible of any condemnation against interracial marriage. Nowhere. In fact, we read in the book of Numbers that when Moses' big brother and big sister got mad at him because he had married an Ethiopian woman, that would have been his second wife because his own wife would have probably died by then, uh, Zipporah, so he took another wife, and she was from Ethiopia. In other words, she was an African lady, and God cursed whom? He cursed Aaron, and he cursed Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, because of their wicked attitude towards people who didn't look like them. What's in view here is not that at all. What's in view is explained very clearly in verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, 
and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. See, this is the critical thing. Is there a marriage that God forbids? Absolutely. A believer should never marry an unbeliever. In other words, that's an unequal yoke. And it's absolutely, totally, completely condemned in Scripture. You need to marry in the Lord. What happens if you didn't marry in the Lord? God will hear your prayer, and He will bless you, and He may save your unsaved partner. Let me say that again. He may save your unsaved partner. So just because you married an unbeliever and feel in a way, oh, I disobeyed God, I'm in a mess, never forget this great truth. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what I've done in the past, if we're a believer, it's never too late to get on our face before God and say, Lord, I really messed up. Please help me. And that is laid out so clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 by the Apostle Paul where he lays out three basic structures, the commands of the Lord Jesus himself, Paul's commands, and Paul's opinions. They're, they're laid out in three different ways. The Lord's command that Paul quotes, Paul's command as an apostle, and Paul's opinions that he offers. It's interesting, isn't it, that even Paul would say, well, I've got an opinion on this, but this isn't authoritative. So that's something that's very important. What is the key reason to demolish their altars? Notice what this goes on. He says, this is what you're due to them, verse 5. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. What does holy mean? Holy, does that mean non-fumo, non-mendoco, uh, non-cumpuelis? Uh, I forget the rest of the Latin. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who do. <laughs> is that holiness? No, holiness isn't what you do. It's what you are. It means that you've been separated from the world to be joined to the Lord. That's what sanctification is. It's being joined to the Lord. It happens instantly when you're saved, and it happens progressively throughout the rest of your life, and is not completed until you go be with Jesus. So holiness means that you're set apart for the Lord. You belong to Him. You're God's children. You're His people. And He loves you, and He's on your side. So He says that your, your holiness to the Lord uh, demand certain things. Look at this, the next sentence of verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> out of all the peoples on the earth, out of all the peoples on the earth, on the face of the earth, <coughs> to be his people, his treasured possession. I love the next part. The Lord did not set his affection on you, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8, But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commands. But, 
I don't like the next verse, do you? (laughs) But I have to remember, that's just as much the part of God's Word as what we just read. But those who hate Him, He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate Him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. What was God attempting to do with the people that he had chosen out of Egypt merely because he loved them and was loyal to the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What was he attempting to do? He was attempting to prosper them with physical health, with finances, with peace, with harmony in their homes. In other words, with shalom. The Hebrew word shalom doesn't just mean an absence of war. Shalom means prosperity physically and financially in all your relationships with everybody whatsoever. I want God's shalom. And that's one reason why I usually end a service by pronouncing the Aaronic benediction, which says, and the Lord give you peace. That's shalom. When I lift my hands at the end of the service and bless you, I attempt to follow the example of Aaron, the high priest, who wasn't perfect, as we've just seen, and put God's shalom on you, his physical and financial health and health in relationships and in everything you do so that you might be, in the words of Psalm 1, the blessed person that whatsoever you do will prosper. And again, that's never perfect in this life. It will be in the world to come. So this is what God has, has done And he says, so be careful, in verse 32, uh, to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. So if we're going to be blessed by God, there are certain things we should do, and certain things we should not do. What is the number one way that ancient Israel provoked God? It was idolatry. It was idolatry. You know, I look back at my life, and I see that God has taken care of me over and over again, even when I hated Him, because of my mother's prayers because of her father's and mother's prayers. God took care of me even when my feet were making swift to hell because he loved me, because he kept the promise that he made to my mother that she would pray at night on her knees for me. God wants to bless you in every area of life. There are things you have to do. You have to turn away fundamentally from every allegiance to every false god. Remember what we said last Lord's Day. There are other gods. Yahweh is not the only supernatural being. There are other supernatural beings. But, and this is a gigantic but, they are not gods. They are phony gods. They are made-up gods. They are supernatural. They are creatures of God that rebelled against them in their pride. They have real power but they're not gods. And so what God wants, the God of the Bible, is your loyalty. Your loyalty, your absolute loyalty, and my absolute loyalty. And when we're challenged by anything else, we're liable to get into trouble. So again, what does this mean? It means, as we saw last week, that what Israel did 
in conquering Canaan is a foreshadowing of the second coming of Christ. Because when Christ returns, only those who have repented and put their trust in Jesus are going to be saved as this world undergoes a universal annihilation. So we see in Israel's conquest of Canaan, a judgment on the Canaanites. Why did God judge the Canaanites? Just a quick snippet from last week. He judged the Canaanites because the Canaanites believed that when they worshipped their gods, which they did by shedding blood, and not only their own blood, as in Elijah and the prophets of Baal, but they took their children and they killed them. In some cases, they burned their children alive to their gods. Can you imagine such cruelty? They burned their own children alive to their demonic gods. And so God judged them. They also believed that when they engaged in what's called cultic or ritual prostitution, that they were actually having physical relations with their demon gods. And so God determined to wipe out that terrible culture with its terrible practices, with its perversions, with its uh, bloody dealing with innocent people. And he determined to wipe them out. And he authorized Israel. And remember this, ancient Israel is the only nation on the face of the earth at any time that has ever been authorized by God to commit genocide. And if you understand the reason for that genocide, you begin to appreciate what God was doing, and that is he was wiping out a completely violent, perverted, demonic culture that killed its own children alive to propitiate these demon spirits, that he was doing that in order to give Israel their land. So that's a key. Now let's look at another passage in Deuteronomy, turning to the right, we go over to Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter uh, 20, and I want to see something again. Look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. Uh, and there we read, page 304, When you march to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves." And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. Look at verse 15. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Let's reflect on that for a moment. Let's see how far we can get in this sermon today uh, and see if I need to finish it next week. Now, this is very critical and something that I want to comment on is that God has not authorized any nation on the earth today to practice this. It was only ancient Israel. Only ancient Israel was authorized by God to do this. And it has to do with waging war 
with cities that were attempting to rise up against God's people, but did not live, that were not inside the promised land. This is people who are not in the promised land. This is very critical. Now I've got to make a comment. Since I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Islam, I've got to tell you, what religion in the world today practices this? Exactly what we find here in Deuteronomy 20.10 uh, through 15. Does Judaism practice that? No. Does Christianity practice that? No. The followers of Muhammad practice this. This was Muhammad's idea, and that is why it conquered the world so quickly. What they did, they would go up to a city, and they would demand its surrender, and what they had a special deal. This is one of those deals that's too good to be true, and, uh, but it really was a genuine deal. If you will surrender to us and become a Muslim, then you can join us in battle, and you can do this to other cities that we encounter. And so what do you think happened to most of the cities in the world that, during the first hundred years after Muhammad's death? Most cities in the ancient world converted to Islam because what happened then is when you converted to Islam and you're a man, you got to join in conquering other places, and if the men didn't submit, you wiped them out and you took their wives and their children as your slaves. That's how Islam conquered the world. You know, it's interesting, if you were to give DNA tests, you would discover that much of the ancient world had a bloodline going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because even those nations that had come to believe in Jesus Christ in the Roman Empire, most of them eventually submitted to Islam. Because here's what you got. As long as you tie 20%, I bet a TV preacher would really like that. As long as you tie 20% to the, quote, church, which in that case is the nation of Islam, the Ummah, as long as you tie 20%, you got to keep 80% of the proceeds of these conquests. So Muhammad did base his religion somewhat on the Bible, mainly out of the Old Testament, and mainly out of the, the passages in Scripture that dealt with Israel's conquest of Canaan. That's very important to understand. Islam is not so much a religion as a political philosophy with a religious base. Wow. Could you say that of Christianity? Only if you believe that our agenda has nothing to do with civil politics, but winning other people to Jesus by love and kindness, generosity, and prayer. So this is the first thing we notice there. Now notice in verse 16. However, page 304, Deuteronomy 20.16, In the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Notice again, verse 18, here's the reason. And there's nothing deadlier than the demonic. There's nothing deadlier than the demonic. And he says, otherwise, 
they will teach you to follow all their detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. See? Spiritual danger. Spiritual danger. It's there. And by spiritual danger, I'm not using it in a nebulous term. And I'm not referring to capital S, the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about demonic spirits, fallen angels who are depraved and who want to exalt themselves and they don't care anything about you. And he says, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now, Let's turn quickly, because I think we can get through this, back to Joshua chapter uh, 9. Joshua chapter 9. So what happens is this. In Joshua 9, we discover, and we didn't go there yet, Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites have learned of all of the terrible things that Israel is going to do. And it says, beginning in verse 1 on page 343, Now when all the kings went west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Israel and Judah. Uh, excuse me, Joshua and Israel. Look at verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. So what are we reading here? What we're reading here is that the nations of, that we've just read about, I don't want to try to repeat from memory all those tongue-twisting uh, names, they unite to fight Joshua and Israel. But there's a group of people who live within the land of Canaan, who say, hmm, what are we going to do? They don't know what to do. In fact, we discover here uh, on page 345, uh, in verse 24, this is what the Gibeonites say to Joshua. Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So what did they do? They went to Hollywood. Hollywood in the land of Canaan. And they went to the people who do those fancy clothes that people wear in movies, and the makeup artists and all that stuff, and said, we need to put on a show. I'm making a joke. What they did was they disguised themselves. They took old bread. They got old shoes that they were ready to throw away where the leather was cracked and uh, old wineskins that were cracked. And they traveled to meet Israel. And then so as we look back, we read here, uh, looking at the top of page 344, uh, the very... The statement there in verse 4, Joshua 9, 4. This is the Gibeonites. They resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal 
and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Verse 7, The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? Look at verse 8. We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? Verse 9, They answered, (coughs) Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigneth, who reigned in Ashtoreth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see... How dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Now look at verse 14. Be careful before you buy that used car. Be careful before you co-sign a note for someone. Verse 14. The men of Israel sampled their provisions. Well, this sure is moldy bread. Have you ever tasted moldy bread? I mean, really moldy bread? Have you ever made a sandwich and you'd had that bread in the refrigerator and it's been in there four weeks and you forgot and somehow or another when you first bite into it, you say, oh man, that tastes nasty. But anyhow, the men of Israel sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. (sighs) Did not inquire of the Lord. Think about it. God wants you. And he wants me to inquire of him about every significant decision in our lives. Lord, is this what you want? Is this good for me? Will this be good for my family? Will this be good for my relationship with you? That's what he wants. He wants that from you and me. And what a profound illustration of what happens when people fail to do that. They sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Ratified it by oath. Who, made, what, who did they make those oaths in the name of? The Lord, their God, Yahweh. Now notice, and this is so indicative of human nature and human history. Verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out on the third day, came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephara, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, Whenever that's in all caps, that means Yahweh, by Yahweh, their God, the God of Israel. Now think about this for a moment. Sadly, when we don't seek God's guidance, I mean really seek it with humility and a willingness for him to tell us what to do and then submit to it, we will often find out three days later. Usually it's longer than that. Sometimes it's sooner than that. But when it's too late 
we find out. But they'd made an oath. Now this is what's important as we turn back finally to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. And this is what happens. Who was King Saul? King Saul was a self-righteous religious fanatic uh, who was bloated with a fanatical zeal to serve God at all cost. He was given to uh, fasting and putting people under terrible oaths. Uh, and at one point, that's, 20, that's page 507, at one point even was willing to put to death his firstborn son because his firstborn son, not knowing Saul's ridiculous, religious, fanatical, self-righteous, works righteousness, oath that they couldn't eat or drink till they'd killed their enemies, he happened to come across some honey and he dipped his, uh, the tip of his spear in it and tasted it and it, it refreshed him because he needed the sugar. And so uh, Saul said, well, you're going to have to die, Jonathan. He was a crazy man. And never forget that many religious people are led by crazy people. They really are. I watched because we happened to be friends with uh, Jeremy Volo and Ginger Volo. Uh, we got to become close friends of theirs when we, lived, we worked in the church in Laredo, Texas for a couple of years. She was one of the 19. We never saw the show, and I think that's why they liked us. <laughs> But there was an expose on that. And the expose was very, very condemning of the practices that their daddy, Jim Bob Duggar, uh, indulged in following the bizarre, fanatical rules of a man who had never been married and who now, over 80 years old, still lives in his parents' house, who gave incredible, legalistic, binding, absolute rules, black and white, how long your skirt had to be, whether you could wear this clothes or those clothes, all these crazy rules and regulations. I'm referring to a man who had a terrible fall, and his name is Bill Gothard. Now, Bill Gothard had a lot of truth. I attended his seminar, and I attended his advanced seminar. I even took our church youth group there in Dallas so we could hear him at night and the next morning, I took my Bible out and corrected everything he said, saying, well, here, this is a biblical principle, but here's where he's wrong, A, B, C, D. So anyhow, I was looking at this documentary, and I was struck how amazing it is that godly people will submit to ungodly, crazy, extremist fanatics. Wow. And, and that was, that's the sad story of what meant to be something wonderful and good, took biblical principles and then distorted it. So anyhow, this is who King Saul is. And what King Saul does is he attempts to annihilate the Gibeonites. But the Gibeonites had been put under the protection of the Lord God of Israel because of the covenant that Israel entered into with them. And God willing, when I return from Arizona and Denver, two weeks from today, we will continue to be continued. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will use this study with a shotgun of comments and applications to our personal lives 
to give us to know wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that we're not under these curses of the Old Testament because the Lord Jesus Christ took our curses when he died on the cross in order that the blessings of Abraham might come not only to the Jewish people, but even to Gentiles who believe. Bless us, Lord, and encourage us. And if there's anyone here today listening uh, on the internet or here who doesn't know Jesus, pray, Lord, for the ability uh, for them to find out how easy it is to be saved and to have our sins forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Our next hymn is number 563.